This is episode 94 of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of Two Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, it's Anita here. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to share with you that I created a brand new free prenatal pelvic floor resource for you. It's a free ebook with three common misconceptions when it comes to preparing your pelvic floor for birth and includes three tips of what to do instead. If you're pregnant or know someone who is, this resource is key for preparing for birth. The tips I share are what I teach and have worked through with hundreds of prenatal physiotherapy clients and I use myself with both of my pregnancies. Also, a bonus is that two of these tips will also give you a head start on your postpartum recovery by understanding how to connect to your pelvic floor before you even give birth. You can go to the link in the show notes for this episode at twobirthandbeyond.com or to my website, holistichealthphysio.com to download your free ebook today. So welcome back to another episode of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Anita Lambert, and today I'm excited to chat with Haley Shevner and Anne-Marie Everett, where we'll be busting some myths and decreasing fear and increasing support and hope around the topic of pelvic organ prolapse. So thank you so much for you both for being on today. Thanks, Anita, for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. This is really fun for me. And so some of you listening may have heard, so way back, episode 20, we had Haley on, um, where she shared about her journey up until that point um, with experience prolapse. So if you missed that, we'll be sure to link that in the show notes for you. Um, But for those who don't know Haley and Anne-Marie, so just a little bit about them, and then I'm going to have them share a bit more of their journey. Um, Haley is a strength coach, a perinatal exercise expert, fitness presenter, and a mom who's experienced pelvic organ prolapse. And Anne-Marie is a pelvic floor physical therapist with advanced training in issues concerning women's health. Together, they've recognized a massive gap in the way we experience, manage, treat, and talk about pelvic organ prolapse. And you'll also hear us say POP instead of pelvic organ prolapse a lot because it's just way quicker to say. Um, And they're on a mission to change the narrative around POP. So they believe that education that is evidence-guided, empathetically delivered, can eliminate fear, offer solutions, and provide educated hope. So we're so excited to have you both on. And uh, we've had a lot of questions. So I'll be bringing a few of the common ones up tonight that we've um, gotten recently. And I know everyone's excited to hear what you both have to say. So if you each can kind of share a little bit about your journey and kind of what got you interested in creating more resources around POP. 
Yeah, I'll start. Um, I'm Haley, and like you so eloquently detailed, I'm various types of exercise professional in San Francisco. (laughs) And uh, after the birth of my son, and really during my pregnancy, I realized how little information there was for people like me who had a little bit more of an athletic background and maybe weren't just doing the kind of standard prenatal yoga or like walking that was mostly recommended to me. Um, And the resources I was able to find really didn't discuss athleticism in pregnancy or beyond. Uh, And so right then and there, I kind of realized, okay, this is something that I'm unsure of how to how to go from here and and what I can do um, to make myself to to bolster my response in terms of exercise and then being able to get back to the exercise I wanted to do. Uh, I had that journey of birth that often doesn't go the way that we think it will or or desire it to, um, and had kind of heard while I was pregnant the typical like you're just gonna squat that baby out and you know you're just gonna bounce right back because you're doing pull ups at 37 weeks pregnant and like no problem mama and uh, all really well meaning stuff but uh, and I kind of believed all of that too that I was going to just have this like rock star birth that like, you know, I was going to be in a field with like animals and magic and it was not like that. And um, which now has become this catalyst for wanting to do more to talk about that and support people going through that process. But anyway, long story short, pop diagnosis following um, the birth of my son and, and well into that first year. Um, had already been working with people who were pregnant or postpartum and felt like I really had a great grasp on various topics involving exercise and concerns that people would have. Um, But my understanding of POP, pelvic organ prolapse, was that it was this really rare situation, this extreme condition, uh, and like the worst thing ever. And so I internalized all of those messages post-diagnosis. And what has had to transpire since then is this process of acceptance and being able to find a way to move forward. Uh, At the time, I thought, oh boy, I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to have to change all of the things that I love doing. Um, And there were things that changed and there were, you know, influential factors in my job. But uh, what really happened was this uh, this pull to want to make better resources so that people didn't feel so alone with their experience um, in managing pop. And so, as the years progressed, he's my son is now almost five, uh, which is pretty wild to think about. Um, but yeah, I've, I started a Facebook group, which got a lot of traction. I remember talking to a friend and was like, do you think anyone's going to want to talk about pop and fitness? And she was like, yeah, I think a few people. And now there are almost 5,000. And through that resource, especially, I realized that people just wanted to talk about things. They wanted to learn about things. Um, They weren't feeling supported in their choices. They didn't even know how to make choices. Uh, And so it became really, really clear to me that we needed to have something like what Anne-Marie and I had created. Um, have created, which is kind of this one-stop shop of places to a place to go to find that information and find that support um, that I've seen have such a transformational effect, not only on myself, but on the people that I'm interacting with. So 
don't know if that answered the question, but <laughs> yeah, it totally did. Yes. I know how I got here. Um, and you know, like we were just talking, it's been a year and a half since we last spoke and I, I, I don't know what day it was yesterday. So it's all kind of been a blur, <laughs> um, but it's been this really beautiful blur that has led to this really powerful movement. I think that isn't just us, but just in the way we talk about these things in the last five years is so different. And that's so amazing to me. It's been less than a decade, but there's already so much change. And that gives me so much excitement for what comes next in these next five years. And I think with our partnership and our, our program, um, I'm really excited to see kind of what, what happens there. So what Yeah, I definitely would say that. that. <laughs> should I try? You I guess should I should. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm Anne Marie and I, so I was in physical therapy school, um, up until 2014 and from my first kind of foray into the women's health, public health sphere, it was something that I felt really strongly about. And at the time, I think the, the thing that drew me to it was, uh, the idea that somehow like people with vaginas couldn't get good answers to their questions. And, and I felt like that was just really unfair. And if I were somebody who needed answers, I wanted there to be answers. Um, and so, so for me, it, it kind of started with that sort of impulse and at this idea that, um, for the number of people with problems, there just weren't a lot of good resources. And I wanted to be one of those resources. Um, but I think the the thing that I have become acutely aware of and talk a lot about in the course but but drives me to do this work and also has kind of driven me um, in the past to make the choices that I've made about what to do with my time um, was realizing that I felt really unprepared for like life as a pelvic physical therapist and um, and thinking, you know, oh, if I just have the right rules and the right exercises and the right manual therapy techniques, then I can really fix people and like be this positive force in people's lives. And that's really just not how it works. Um, and I think that if we as healthcare providers are doing our jobs that way, then it is inherently never going to work the way that it could, um, both for our own potential for burnout and actually feeling like we're, we're being effective in our jobs, but, but also for really making meaningful change and, and making our relationship positive with, with our clients. And so um, prolapse is one of those things that I felt like I was getting met with questions and experiences that I didn't have a way to answer. And it was, you know, okay, here's this set of instructions that I've been given in all of my courses that's kind of presented as, as dogma, as truth, as stuff that is just the way that it is. And, and I am somebody who functions very well trying to make people like me and think that I'm good at things. And so I just really like to learn the rules and like be good at the rules that were taught to me. And, and it wasn't until I was met with the reality of seeing them not apply to people and to be learning from my clients that I was just wrong. Like I, I was not correct. And they were doing things that were far beyond what they should have been able to do according to my rules and my training that I, there was no way to ignore the fact that 
something was lacking and it wasn't them. <laughs> it, it was, it was my experience. It was my training. And I thought that I had gotten the best of the training that was available to me. Um, and I think there was, there's just this inherent tension right now between the way that things have been done and the way that things are currently being done by people who are choosing to strike out on their own um, and say, forget that. They told me I can't do CrossFit or running or whatever. And I'm going to figure it out on my own because this is so important to me um, that I have like taken a huge ego check, you know, as of a couple of years ago and really realized how much I need to learn from people who have not been constrained by the same rules that were were taught to me but also that in order to make this not the case that i have to be somebody who helps change the the rules and the conversation for healthcare providers because um i i think that we will start to become obsolete if we're not able to meet people where they are and um and that is so important to me that I, I can't wait for graduate schools to figure this out. Um, because right now I get, you know, people who went to my school get a four hour lecture on the pelvic floor, right? That's not, not even close, I'm even scratching the surface. And, um, and so I think that instead, instead of complaining about there not being enough resources for professionals um, and for patients and for people trying to understand our modern understanding of POP, um, that, that I had to be part of that. And I have learned far more in this process than I ever have in my training. Um, because I think that there is just this, this tension of that disconnect there. So that's, that's why I do this. Um, <laughs> that's why I, I get up in the morning and, you know, work far more than 40 hours a week and all that stuff. But, um, but I think that it's the people who know better now, it's our responsibility to help advance the conversation. And, and that's something that I hope I hope people feel a fire about after this conversation or taking our course or whatever um, is that we need to do better um, and we can and we are and, and we need to help each other learn how to do that better. So anyone who's listening, because one of the things I know is really common with clients coming in, I, would, I feel like pelvic organ prolapse is one of the pelvic floor issues that a lot of people have never heard of unless they've received the diagnosis. So can you share a bit? Um, just kind of a, a summary of what pelvic organ prolapse is um, and some of the common symptoms that um, you both often hear from, from clients and what you experience too, Haley. Um, so what's funny is that when you try to find a good definition, there turns out there isn't one, um, which is a fun way to start your journey writing a course <laughs> is you're like, oh man, like I thought this was going to be the easy section. Um, and so the ICS, the International Consciousness Society, defines it as a departure from normal. <laughs> Whatever an individual's normal is, it is a departure from that, which in and of itself is a whole weird conversation about like, well, when did you check what your normal was? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Um, but basically it's some um, bothersome or abnormal descent of the pelvic organs towards the vaginal opening or in the case of uh, rectal prolapse towards the anal opening. Um, but I would say that if you look at grading systems that are used and studied, we're talking about, you know, some level of descent of the vaginal wall towards the level of the hymen, so the vaginal opening, essentially, um, that's beyond, you know, just slightly. So it's, it's more significantly towards the vaginal opening or past it. Um, Symptom-wise, I think the 
the major one is going to be a feeling of heaviness or dragging or bulging or falling out, any of those words. Um, and I ask when I'm screening people for it, I'll ask them and the people who have it will go, Oh yeah, that's, thank you for validating that that's a real sensation I can have. And the people that don't have it, look at me like I have three heads. Um, and they're like, what, what is, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, great. You don't have it. No problem. Like, let's move on. Um, but that's a very distinctive feeling for people. Um, and then there can be kind of mechanical, uh, obstructive voiding symptoms. So difficulty with fully emptying the bladder or fully having a bowel movement. So constipation, because it's hard to get stool out, not because it's hard stool, um, can be a sign, for example, of a rectocele. And, and those are the major defining factors for most people is kind of obstructed voiding and the heaviness feeling. Um, and the major one that often comes up that doesn't actually seem to be a prolapse symptom is uh, stress incontinence. Um, and that's a major conversation with people is that prolapse doesn't cause stress incontinence. You can have them together for sure, and many people do. Um, but ironically, a real kind of significant prolapse symptom might in fact be the opposite, which is obstructed bladder emptying. Yeah, in terms of my experience and kind of discovering this fun fact about me, um, I, you know, I had never done any rigorous studying of my vulva prior to having a baby. Um, and even postpartum, I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? Um, and then I, I do remember very distinctly the first time I did take a hand mirror down and check things out. I was like, okay, like it wasn't what I was anticipating because, you know, you've just had this like very, um, traumatic or triumphant experience of having this, you know, your first child at, at a vaginal birth. Um, and things felt very intense down there, but I, what I was seeing was not that intense initially. Um, and so I went back to training kind of the way that I always had and uh, actually decided to like really ramp up my training um, around like six weeks postpartum. <laughs> and uh, despite like potentially knowing that that was maybe not the best trajectory from a, you know, my body perspective, um, but it was the best trajectory in terms of my mental wellness. I was really struggling with the psychological component of postpartum. So anyway, I went back to training pretty rigorously. Um, and over time, I started to notice little things here and there. Uh, but honestly, they didn't really seem that significant to me. Uh, it wasn't something that was different than like the kind of, like I would say, pretty standard like aches and pains that you might expect if you're someone who trains six or seven days a week. Um, the kind of muscle soreness or like, oh, that feels kind of cranky today, that kind of level of discomfort. Um, most notably was some discomfort at the like tailbone, like sacral area, which was also not super atypical for me. I'd had some chronic pain stuff before. So none of this was really the like shocking, like, oh, wow, there's something going on that I need to investigate further. It wasn't until really a year postpartum that I had a really stressful day. Um, my son was not sleeping. It was one of those classic kind of regressions on vacation situation. And I remember walking up and down this hotel. Uh, the only way he would sleep was with me like, carrying him. 
So I carried him up and down like 20 flights of stairs uh, several times over the course of like five hours at <laughs> like three in the morning. And, um, and I remember that weekend very distinctly. Uh, and I felt this sense of like, oh, things feel a little Southern and, and maybe a little lower than, than they previously were. Um, and that was really it. It wasn't, it, I think that had I not been working specifically with this population and had I not received education that was very specific about how bad pop was, I don't know that I would have necessarily clued into that sensation and felt super compelled to like then figure out what a pelvic PT was and, and do all that stuff. But I'd had that kind of background information. And so as soon as I felt this sensation, like Anne-Marie was saying, of heaviness, my brain lit up. And it was this, okay, I know exactly what this is. Um, I went immediately online, which uh, is the worst thing to do. And <laughs> I messaged all of these people who were also working with perinatal, uh, with a perinatal population and said like, hey, I think that I have prolapse. And they were like, no, no, you don't. I promise you don't. It's going to be, a, it's something else. And, you know, this very like intense, like, no, it's not that. Um, and, and it was that. <laughs> and, um, but that was really like that, that then the, the awareness that this was happening was actually when things got like, you know, when beep, when got real, like when it got really intense for me. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. <laughs> so I censored myself there. Um, <laughs> you can. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but like, that's when it really got intense for me. When I realized that this was happening or this had happened to me, um, which was how I saw things, uh, then it was all I thought about. It was all I felt. Um, it was all I researched. It was all I Googled. It was all I talked about. It was all I wanted to talk about. Uh, it consumed my entire brain space. And I think directly related to that, it was what I sensed day in, day out. So I went from having kind of like, I could have probably gone through that weekend and had things stayed the same. It would have been like, oh, that's like maybe a little bit interesting. But when I had that word to attach to how I was feeling, and when I thought that I knew what that word meant, prolapse, uh, things became 11 out of 10, um, which, you know, we could talk a lot about the perception of pop in all the ways, how we see ourselves with pop and also how we perceive the symptoms of pop. Um, but that was, that was kind of my first like foray into the sensations of pop. And then now, almost five years later, um, I have intermittent kind of funkiness, but it's also the kind of thing where I feel like if I didn't necessarily have verbiage to attach to that sensation, um, you know, it, it's kind of the, the level of annoyance is probably at the level of like, you've got like a scratchy tag on your sweater. Um, but I'm still kind of processing the experience of believing what those sensations mean. And so I still find myself, even though I've done a lot of work to kind of redirect this conversation with myself, I still find myself when I do feel pop sensations, um, going into that kind of spiral of like, oh, wow, what does, what does that mean for me? 
I think that what's really interesting is what this, what Haley just said about attaching a name to her sensations. I, I think a lot about how we balance our ability to validate people's feelings with a, by saying, yes, this is a thing, right? Like if there is no thing that you are feeling, like if your if your sensations are not attached to any real diagnosis and you're just crazy, I guess, that doesn't make people feel good. And so having somebody look at their vulva and do a vaginal exam and say, nope, looks good, gives them nothing to try to reconcile their symptoms with. And at the same time, it seems like the other extreme is a diagnosis delivered with all of the doom and gloom that comes with that and all of the weight and all of the implications that come with that based on our no longer updated understanding of prolapse. And so I think what I often struggle with in the diagnostic part and the conversation part with clients is how do I deliver that word without losing them to the spiral of anything that they've heard before? And how do I make sure that I give that diagnosis with plenty of time before they walk out my door that I'm not worried they're going to email me at three in the morning that night because they haven't been able to sleep because now they've decided what this means for them based on what they read online. Um, and so I, I think that that's also one of the reasons why people struggle with a diagnosis when if their ob says, nope, looks normal, and their PT says, you have prolapse, this is abnormal, your ob lied to you, that can we both be right? Can we both have like the right information to give to people, but one person's erring on the side of lessening the blow and the other person is erring on the side of validating the concern and giving somebody something to work towards and work around. It's like, there has to be a middle ground, right? We, we can't just have it be a binary of it's normal and therefore do nothing about it, or it's completely abnormal and you have to now completely change your life. And I think that that's the hard part about um, the word and the diagnosis and deciding whether somebody has earned a diagnosis of prolapse based on what they're telling you, um, when what we're going off of is very sketchy in terms of official guidance here from the governing bodies that be, um, but also like what it means to tell somebody that they have a diagnosis like that when they maybe don't have the same background that Haley did in that information, or they do, and, and how do we immediately counter that tendency to go down that spiral with real actionable information. And so I think that's one of the reasons that the pop-up program, I, I love it is because I can say, okay, I don't have another 45 minutes to talk to you, but can you, I would like but to here's 45 hours, but <laughs> lucky you, um, like maybe this can be the, the follow-up to our conversation. And so I, I think that um, that that's, that's the nuance of it as we're trying to straddle these worlds of the way that it is and the way that it should be. Um, that I think it's so, I immediately jump on that word and, and try like, I'm like, I'm going to say the word prolapse and, you know, let me talk at you for the next 15 minutes about what that means. Um, because I think that's, that's the hard part we're at right now. Well, and yeah. I don't think that anyone has, like, there is no other condition in the body that I'm aware of where you, you have the visual of things falling out of your body. Like there's nothing like your eyeballs don't just fall out your, maybe they do your, <laughs> like your organs in other places. They, they don't fall through your foot. Like we have this very clear understanding of gravity 
from the time that we, before we can even define it, when we're being knocked down by it as like little babies. And so we understand very viscerally this concept of like things being dragged down. And the way that it's discussed is often like, you know, in the headlines or in, it's your organs falling out. And I think the person with POP kind of has a, an understanding of that in their body. And then they're seeing all this information that's affirming this idea of things falling out and like what a, a terrifying narrative to, to be involved in. I mean, that was my thing was this sudden feeling that I had to hold everything up, not just my like, you know, pelvic viscera, but my ability to like go on with my day because suddenly everything is falling out of my body. And so we have this very heavy <laughs> thing that's happening. Um, and I think some of that heaviness is not, is, is not only related to the weight of one's pelvic organs, but the weight of these words that we're using to define what's happening in the body. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, yeah, that's why I love what you two are putting out there because what I find often with clients too is if they do have any awareness of prolapse, it's associated with the organ fully being outside the body. So that's kind of the only kind of narrative that they've heard of. And also it only be associating with someone of a certain age. Yeah. So when they're, you know, a new mom or of uh, kind of a different age than thinking menopause or postmenopause, it's a very complete surprise. So I totally know what you feel like, Anne-Marie, when you do um, on assessment find that and then having that discussion with the client with trying to find that middle ground of that support and not having to be such a fearful um, discussion, but some people it's, you know, it, you're right. It depends on what they've heard ahead of time of, of where, if that spiral starts to happen. Um, so yeah, I think the programs you've created are so needed because if we can educate people before, um, having some sort of knowledge before, I, yeah, I just think it can make such a world of difference in, in how we talk about it. Um, and so when it comes to how common it is, which we've kind of brought that up, and I just feel like anytime within courses, but even doing research, there are so many different numbers that are out there. So from the research that you both have done, which is very extensive, what has been the range that you have found? Because there's a huge range of what different studies are saying of how common prolapse actually is. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite graphics from the original <laughs> course is this graphic that defines the range that we've seen depending on how we're defining POP. So various studies, um, some looking at symptoms plus anatomy, some only looking at anatomy, looking at different populations, et cetera. Um, but the number is 2.9 to, I believe, 93%. So uh, about everyone or no one, and <laughs> pick a number, any number, uh, and you're going to get a pretty good chance of being on that chart. Um, but what we tend to see from an observational perspective when the studies are done uh, looking at 
um, not looking at symptoms and just looking at what anatomy is telling us. Um, it tends to range around 50%, but again, that population is not always defined. Sometimes that's 50% of Paris women, sometimes that's 50% of over 18 year olds. I mean, it, it tends to, to vary. Um, but I think what we can say is that it's incredibly common. Uh, it doesn't seem to be, or, or it's incredibly common. It's less common for people to feel sensations of pop, or it's less common for people to note that as their primary um, finding. So it's more common to find kind of accidental pop uh, than it would be to see like all of those people help me out here like words are not making sense there um, <laughs> you're doing great uh, like i'm interested to see where you're going with this. I, I am too uh, <laughs> like we're looking at many many people who have no idea that their architecture of their pelvis has changed in some way um and then a smaller percentage of people who kind of figure that out before maybe they even go to see someone so really, really common. Um, in the postpartum period, the numbers are upwards of like 75% for some of the studies. Um, I wish I'd looked at those just recently, like recent in, as in the last hour, uh, because I could have given you an actual number, but they're quite striking. And these are people who have had cesarean births um, or vaginal births. Uh, within that first year of postpartum, we're looking at really high percentages um, and some of those, those percentages persist beyond that, that initial kind of phase of postpartum healing. Uh, so really common, it's more common that we would have some dissent uh, than that we wouldn't. When we're looking at the studies that looked at or considered POP to be anything like grade one and above, which is technically not how we're defining it now, but when we included, when they included, we, I wish I'd done the research, when they included people above of stage one, it was, those were the like 93% studies. So pretty much anyone by a certain point in their life, by the time they would be going to be included in a study, right, by the time they're 18, um, we're looking at some degree of dissent being really common. Um, and possibly not associated with symptoms, which is the really exciting, like talking about the commonality of POP is exciting to me because it makes people feel not alone. But the other part that's really exciting to me is talking about the discrepancy between people who experience some degree of POP and then the people who experience symptoms of POP. The part that I love about this that jives so well with the overall movement of where physical therapy is going is, is the very clear and striking information about what the rest of our bodies look like as we age as well. Um, and it, you know, if we step back and think like, oh, of course, of course we get to be 80 years old and have some evidence of existence on our tissues, you know, it, I think that if we if we really question, like, do you think we could live our whole lives and have no evidence of anything happening? Um, I think all of us would pretty much agree that it would be crazy to expect no change. Um, but when we look at all of these images of spines, of hips, of shoulders, of pelvises, of necks, all of these things generally show that it would be abnormal for you to have a clean MRI or a clean X-ray um, by the time that you're an adult. And yet it would still be the people in the minority who would have pain or limiting symptoms. And so um, I think the conversation as a whole 
um, has to reconcile all of those things kind of at once, right? Like we, I don't think we have the conversation about pop and pop symptoms and pop anatomy without inherently having to have the conversation about how we discuss everything else in the body that is symptomatic or not, depending on what it looks like anatomically. And, and that to me is really exciting because I think that um, those movements have to piggyback off of each other in order for them to make sense at all. Um, and so for all the, the fitness folks and for the physios who are listening to this uh, podcast, I think it's, you know, I think we have to have that conversation too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of symptoms, um, we, there was a question we had about hormone cycles and symptoms of prolapse or they did ask how hormone cycles affect prolapse. So I'm curious what you both have found, because this is something I do talk about with clients um, many days in the clinic, um, just the symptoms of heaviness and how their sensation of their prolapse seems to change depending where they are in their cycle. So I'm curious of what you found, whether it's during ovulation or um, during the menstruation part, um, any effects on the position of prolapse or symptoms of prolapse? Yeah, so there are a lot of things going on in that question. Um, I would like to start with this informal survey that we ran for uh, talking about menstruation or one cycle um, relating to symptoms of POP. Uh, or sensations of pop. Uh, There were definite upticks in terms of sensations experienced right around when people believed they were ovulating and right before their period. Um, Not necessarily during, but right before seemed to be a little bit of a a jump in terms of when people experience symptoms. And that does seem pretty consistent with a lot, if not all, of the people that I'm talking to that are still ovulating or having a cycle. Um, There does seem to be some cyclical involvement. Whether that's related to, you know, how that relates to the anatomy is harder to pin down. When we were doing research on hormones and the pelvic floor, it's tricky to kind of figure out what we're actually looking at because a lot of that research is looking at menopause, but it's impossible to remove age from that conversation. Um, And so like whether, whether estrogen, which is the common one that people are, are usually pointing to is directly related to the contractility of the pelvic floor. It does not seem to be the case. Um, But could it influence other things that are going on in that kind of ecosystem uh, in terms of like vaginal tissue or like lubrication, constipation. So there are all of these things that are also happening. So it's really difficult to figure out what is actually leading to the sensation or the increase in sensation and or if there's increased actual like descent. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say if somebody was coming to me, and people do this occasionally, come to me and say, I want you to tell me whether it's worse today, I kind of don't play that game anymore because I'm like, well, do you want to list a hundred different risk factors for this being different today and tell me whether any of them have changed? Like, it, it... it is. It seems to me so unscientific to try to gauge anatomical change unless it's really dramatic and really stereotypical. Um, that I, I think we can definitely affirm that if there is a connection between 
the phase of the menstrual cycle and somebody's symptoms, it seems to follow the pattern that Haley described. Um, but I think in terms of anatomy, it's also, I would never want to run that study. I mean, it, yeah, it I feels like there are so many. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the hardest part of all of this, unless there is a dramatic trend or it's like on day 30, your bladder just falls five inches lower. I, I don't, I don't know how you would just definitively know. And then it would go back up, right? Like a week later, it would be higher again. Right. Um, I've never seen anybody where I could definitively pin it down. Yeah. I, I mean, in my personal experience, what I have kind of attributed to the fluctuation of sensations, things like lubrication, like generally when you're ovulating, um, you'll have more cervical discharge at, or mucus. And that kind of awareness of like that will tune, like clue you into what's happening in your pelvis or will clue me in. Um, and, and that like the constipation or the like diarrhea that can often be associated with either ovulation or one's period respectively. Um, those things could definitely have an impact on not only the structural like demands of the pelvic floor, but how it feels. Um, like I, I can pretty much tell you what my like app says in terms of where I am on my cycle by how much I wish I could poop. Um, because right around like day 14 or whatever, I'm like, yes, okay, this seems consistent, uh, which was actually how I figured out like that there was seemingly an association uh, for me personally. I started like plugging things into this app and was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. It seemed like this time last month, I also felt like everything had suddenly gotten worse. And then it seemed like three days later, it was okay. Um, so there does seem to be some relation there. And from a like personal experience, I can affirm that that seems to be my perspective as well. Um, but I do wonder like how much of that is actually what's structurally like the pelvic floor itself, which is this like rather thin sheath of musculature and connective tissue and all of these other things. And and actually what is happening above it and, and uh, around it in terms of like one's experience. Like I get really tired around my period or I get really cranky around, you know, so it's like my whole central nervous system, the whole experience of my body is different. I might have low back pain around my menstrual cycle. Like there's so many things. Um, but what I think it's helpful, the discussion about one's cycle and pop, I think is helpful uh, from the perspective of like programming if you are someone who is experiencing these kind of consistent influxes and symptoms or, or periods where you feel really great, you can take a look at that. Or, or if you're working with a client, you can take a look at that and say, well, this might be a nice way that we kind of structure your month of exercise. If you are doing more structured program, I kind of naturally deload around ovulation and right before menstruation, just because that seems to feel good in my body. And now I just kind of know that that's going to be the case. And so for a lot of people who feel like they've been kind of robbed of their fitness, having that information beforehand can give back a sense of control. I'm choosing to deload around these times, which is consistent with my exercise programming. I would need that anyway. I can just fit that in during these times. And then I don't have to feel like, oh, well, I couldn't do it today because of my stupid pelvic floor. You just know that that's going to be something that seems to happen every month. You also know that it tends to feel better in a couple days. And that can really help someone feel less afraid of what it is that they're experiencing in their body. 
The other thing to note on menstruation, since we're talking about it, is that some people will first be clued into the experience of their pelvic floor being different because they're noticing that the menstrual cup they used prior or the tampon that they used no longer fits and or no longer feels good. And so that can be a really common experience where someone might initially not really know if something's different down there and then, oh, they go to use their like light tampon and it just makes a graceful exit. And so that can be a way that we're, we're getting information. Um, yeah. Or like people would note that they, they felt like they couldn't use their pessary and their tampon at the same time. And so that was frustrating for them. Like there are concerns regarding menstruation that again, aren't necessarily related to the pelvic floor itself or being able to function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I really like how you put, put that Haley about exercise. Cause I think sometimes or any time that, um, women specifically are maybe the recommendation is to change what you're doing activity wise that kind of sometimes the narrative is well you're fragile or like you're weak at this point in your cycle so i like how you put it as in like this is how my body feels at that that's time why don't we just change what we're doing to kind of continue to feel as best as you can during that time versus yeah my pelvic floor is doing this so no, and from a strength and conditioning perspective, we understand that the body needs to rest and recover in order to elicit hypertrophy and strength and all of these things. And so, you know, I can look at it as, you know, a personal trainer and strength and conditioning specialist and say like, well, no, this is not something that you have to do because of your pelvic floor. It's something that's going to boost your performance overall and your ability to continue to enhance your physical fitness. It's not just something that you're, you know, being led to do because you are, you know, because you're experiencing symptoms. Like we should probably all be prioritizing rest a little bit better than we do. This is a great opportunity uh, that happens to be on this cyclical basis where you can kind of allow yourself that, that time to, to just do something different. I still work out during those times pretty intensely. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to um, cover with you both some of the, um, you've done some posts about them, which I've really appreciated is the myths around certain, I mean, there's many, the, the list of good and bad movements or mm -hmm. safe and unsafe. Um, but a couple of the key ones I wanted, um, you to talk about. So doing a squat in particularly like a wide leg, um, with having pop. So, a lot of people are kind of told, do not squat with your legs wider than your hips. Um, and so how would you respond to that in terms of if, uh, if someone had been told that? Yeah, so I often like to ask questions. And one of the first questions I would want to know is whether someone's hip uh, anatomy, their structure would even allow them to be able to do that. So the idea of this narrow squat is, is very common on a lot of uh, prolapse safe recommendations. Um, but a significant percentage of people can't get to say 90 degrees of hip flexion with that narrow of a stance. So they're already 
in, unable to do that. <laughs> so like the first thing I, I always kind of, to, to bust that myth with clients, I will get them down on the ground and we'll kind of passively explore where their hips seem real happy. So where does your femur like to be uh, in terms of your pelvis? And okay, it seems like it doesn't really like to be directly in front of your midline um, or right next to its neighbor. You actually like to be pretty abducted here or pretty wide out there. Um, and that person's squat is often associated with less effort because they can actually get to that position. They can go to that depth. And so when we're thinking about all of the things that go into squatting or movement, we're considering pressure, anatomy, um, what the person has to be able to do in their life and what they want to be able to do. So if you are someone who has no desire or no need to get out of your couch, your chair, the toilet, um, without rolling over, which like we could laugh, but maybe for someone they will need to roll over or they'll feel really good rolling over. And maybe that's like a fun trick that they do. Um, that's a totally valid thing. But the vast majority of people are squatting all day uh, without maybe even thinking about it, which brings us a really nice opportunity to say, okay, well, this seems like something that is going to happen, has to happen, and that you want to happen because you want to keep participating in your life in this way. And so let's find out the way that your body seems to like to do this the best in terms of like just its default setting, basically. And then whether bringing in your stance or bringing out your stance makes any difference in terms of how you're perceiving it. Is it true that some people in a really broad stance, typically like a sumo squat is what it would be called. Um, is it true that some people with pop will feel this kind of vulnerability in terms of like their openness? Yeah, totally. And like what we understand so much of the pelvic floor in terms of its relation to hip musculature is like, yes, it seems like there might be some movement happening there or some lengthening happening there. Um, but, but, Pop, we, when we're talking about pop, we need to talk about the pelvic floor and the pelvic floor as a set of muscles and connective tissue and all of these things that are functioning at a threshold um, that we can, we can identify. And the vast majority of people are able to meet those demands if we give them the tools to be able to do that. It was kind of a roundabout way to say that I think it's really unfortunate that we've kind of narrowed in on this idea of this wide set squat or really any movement pattern in particular as being like distinctly egregious to the pelvic floor. We're doing a disservice to a lot of people and increasing their degree of fear or hesitation related to these specific movements. So my first question for someone is always, well, how does it feel? And if it doesn't feel great, are there things that we can change before we even address the stance that might make it feel better, maybe more or less pelvic floor activity, um, more or less pressure being managed in a certain way. Um, can we change the load in terms of like the external load on your body? Can we de decrease the difficulty initially to just build your capacity? Like there are so many variables that we can change. And I have a line, there's a line in the course about this. Like if you, if you really believe that you've, like we have this strategy section that anyone who's in the course will see. It's, it's like 30 things. It's like, it's like 30 different sections about these distinct changes that you can make. And like, if you've really gone through all of them and you then can say like, yes, squatting is inherently bad 
for everyone with pop, then like you deserve a medal because you have spent so much time like going through each specific thing. Um, like it, it's comical to think that like you have eliminated everything you could possibly do um, to see if that movement was more accessible to someone. And I think the other important part of this that stands out to me in general, but hearing Haley talk is, is the equation of symptoms with safety or lack thereof. Um, and I think, again, we have to stop having this conversation as if they are a linear and progressive or additive thing. Um, and again, it's, it's the conversation we have about pain too. Is it okay to do a movement that is painful in a lot of in a lot of situations, yes. And if a movement that somebody's doing with pop, especially, is symptomatic, but we know that they're doing things that are far more objectively challenging during the day, but this movement is symptomatic, I think that helps fuel this idea that the movement itself can just be symptomatic. Can that just be the way that it is? And can we modify the experience of that in order to make it more comfortable and to build resilience to it or capacity to it? Um, while acknowledging that the experience of symptoms in that moment does not mean anything about what their prolapse is doing or what it will be doing if they continue to do this movement for the next 30 years of their life, because we don't have the evidence that people who continue to wide leg squat will, as a population, see a progression of their prolapse. I mean, I think those lists must have been created from a place of saying, okay, here are some common threads of the places people are symptomatic, or maybe theoretically, these are places where we feel like there must logically be more pressure. I mean, I think they were all well-intentioned in that way, but it's understanding that first and foremost, there are different amounts of pressure that different people generate in different activities. So, so theoretically, none of those things can really hold water if we, if we acknowledge that every strategy and every person is different. But also this idea that something that is symptomatic must be avoided, as opposed to something that is symptomatic must be trained better or differently. And I think that is that is the physical therapist's job to be able to make the call that that's okay, that we don't immediately take it off the table. And when their trainer emails me asking for what they're not allowed to do, I don't immediately say, well, none of these movements are on the table because when we were doing them together, the person was mildly symptomatic. So therefore don't, don't cross the threshold at all ever because they are on their no good list. And I think we have to, we have to do an experiment with ourselves and maybe our clients and, and ask ourselves, like, when is the last time that you were presented with the idea that something was inherently dangerous and you believed that that was true? And then you set up for that movement and felt like you had an objective view of how you felt doing it. Like if I believe that my oven is on fire and I go to approach it, I'm not just like gingerly approaching it and like, well, I'll just see if it feels hot. Like I'm coming at that with fear. I'm worried about my, myself and these lists that are very well-meaning and want to provide structure also provide the initial experience without even starting to go into the movement. So these are people who, I, I, I see it a lot with planks. Um, there's this idea that you shouldn't plank. Uh, and so people will often say, I feel totally fine, but I know it's wrong. And that's so interesting to me um, 
And those people will often then start saying, and because I know it's wrong, that I'm, I'm looking for things. I'm looking for things that don't feel good. And if you start looking for things, like you'll feel the ants that aren't actually crawling on you. You'll feel, I'm itching right now. You'll feel, <laughs> you know, you'll start to feel that kind of like niggle in your knee or that like slight pressure in your jaw. Like when you tell people to look for things, it's all they see. And so if I believe that squatting with this wide stance is going to lead to my organs coming out of my body, like I'm already tense. I'm already hypersensitive to what's going on in my pelvic floor. I'm constantly scanning. I might not be breathing. Um, I'm already agitated. And that is so powerful in terms of sensation that we can't, you know, we can't get people on this path of being afraid to move without a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. And it ignores that their capacity can change. Like it, it is so crazy to me now in retrospect, although at the time when I was learning all these things, it was like, oh, okay, this is the way that it is. Um, But it's this idea that once problematic for somebody, it will be forever problematic. That, that it is not a question of finding the right level of challenge in this foundational movement pattern, the hip hinge, let's say, okay, let's, can we do it in quadruped? Can we do it in supine? I don't know. Um, is there a way in for this person that we can then use to influence things? Because we're, we're not, we are so adaptable as a nervous system, not even as a musculoskeletal system, but as a nervous system, like what can we change immediately? And the immediate effects of intervention are really crazy to see how rapidly we can change people's experience of almost anything. Um, but even over time, how remarkable that change can be if you just find where the person has to start. Um, and if you never let them start, it's, it's, it's seeing exercise as this binary of good or bad, yes or no, but not seeing all movement as a scalable, inherently scalable, progressive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we would never look at the opposite of that and say, well, you know, you felt good doing hurdles today. I think you should do hurdles all the time. I think you're going to feel great doing hurdles when you're 99, frankly. I think you'll, you'll be, you know, like if we don't believe that anything stays the same when it's positive, but we seem to think that it will always stay the same when it's quote unquote negative. And that's assuming that someone's even had a negative experience to begin with. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think as professionals, it's so amazing to see clients when you do do those, whether it's like a breathing strategy or any sort of strategy and all of a sudden symptoms change for the positive and you just see these light bulbs go off and they're like, I never thought I could do that and feel different. Um, so I think that's such a good point. And cause we did get a lot of questions too. And often I see in the clinic is new moms who are experiencing prolapse symptoms and are being told don't lift more than 10 pounds. And it's like, well, like my son came out 10 pounds. So it's one of those things where you're like, you can't tell someone not to pick up their child or a car seat. Like there was that article mm. not that long ago about picking up oh, that wow. don't pick up your car seat. It's going to cause prolapse. And it's like, really? Like this is, this is where we're at. So yeah, I just think it's well, and not yeah. providing an alternative. Like I get a little snarky sometimes, a lot of the time, <laughs> but I, I want people to be asking their providers like, well, will you be coming home with me and picking up my child? 
will you be carrying me down the stairs? Will you be paying for my ride home because I can't walk downhill now? Like how, how will I be implementing these changes, especially for a population that already feels taxed, that is already having to learn new things daily, that already feels like they're failing at everything and that they're miserable at all of it, then to remove their autonomy and their agency to be able to make choices that allow them to feel like they're able to get through their day and able to keep their children safe or their own bodies safe is just so, it's so unfortunate to me. And it's really upsetting to hear that because it starts to remove a person's confidence in themselves. It, it takes away the joy that they might be able to experience during those days. Like I, I felt very robbed of a lot of that time with my son and with my husband and with myself in the constant Googling and the constant fear of my body and my future. And I just started to detach from life because it didn't really feel worth it if I was going to have to be afraid all the time. And I know so many people for whom that is also the case. And so when we want to do well, sometimes, you know, we try to get this information out in a very quick way or especially social media or articles like the one that you're talking about, Anita, but we don't often consider what the ramifications of that information can be and how literally and how like emotionally that can be perceived by someone. And, you know, I just you know, and anyone who's working with people with pop knows the emotional impact is so significant for so many people. Um, And in this effort to keep people quote unquote safe, which is not evidence-based for the vast majority of the evidence or the vast majority of the information that's out there, but in this effort to keep people safe, we're removing their sense of safety. And it's, that has massive impact on how someone proceeds and how their body moves and how it can function. Um, I get real upset about that. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, yeah, yes. And it, and it is, it is also crazier to think about the people who are told that they're not able to do what they are literally currently doing. Right. Right. Like, oh, you, you, you won't be able to heavy weightlift. Well, okay, well, I just came from the gym and I've been doing that for the last five years and I just started to notice some of these symptoms last week and I'm coming to you for advice and now all of a sudden I'm supine marching for the rest of my life, ignoring the fact that I have this capacity already. It is now just symptomatic or something has changed or maybe I've reached perimenopause or whatever. Um, and, and the idea that once this label has been applied, that no matter what you are currently doing, it does not matter anymore. It doesn't count anymore. And you no longer are quote unquote able to do the thing that you are literally doing. And that the childcare stuff is, well, like you are doing it. Even if you're symptomatic, you still did it today and yesterday and you will do it tomorrow. Um, and and it's not, it's not a conversation of how do we make you more comfortable? It's become a conversation of what do we take out to try to make you more comfortable? but none of that actually does, you can't, no one's exercising three extra hours a day with a newborn, right? Like, so I think that that's the, if you start to really hold it up to the light that way, I feel silly for things that I have said. And I I think that, you know, we should be really questioning like 
we can't just come and impose these medicalized rules on somebody who is showing us the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring up because um, some people asked about it, but I know it's um, in terms of pessaries, because a lot of people haven't heard of pessaries. You've brought it up really well um, through social media and in your courses. And I think there's also a misconception for anyone who has heard of a pessary. It's usually associated with menopause, postmenopause. However, I feel there are many, if, if someone needs that extra support, they would like that extra support. New moms can really benefit because they're doing a lot of lifting. And then if they're also doing exercise on top of that, that I've found some clients really benefit from it. So I'm curious in terms of, um, whether it's research you found or kind of what you've noticed uh, working with, with individuals with POP. Well, and I love the, the idea of the new mom because that presents a chapter where there is actually quite a bit of tissue healing occurring at that time. Unlike any, like it at a volume that is distinct from other periods of one's life. Um, and so that to me presents a really interesting opportunity to give a little bit more support and take some of the load off of the connective tissues and the ligaments of the pelvic floor to allow for things to, to not be so taxed at that time when things are maybe a little bit more uh, vulnerable is not the word I want to use, but have already gone through such a significant demand being having been pregnant and then through the birth process, whatever that looks like. Um, there's really, there's minimal, but to me, very exciting research about pessary use, especially long-term pessary use and the potential that it could, uh, it could be supportive to more than just a like symptom cessation, but actually having some degree of prophylactic use. Um, and especially in the postpartum period, I think that gets even more exciting. Just like I was mentioning, there is some tissue change happening there. Um, on like a cellular level at a broader scale. Um, and yeah, I think, the, I think that pessaries have been presented as this kind of archaic tool for older individuals who are just unable to have surgery or they're waiting to have surgery. They have not been presented as this kind of modern invention um, or turn on the very, I mean, pessaries have been around forever. Um, but the, the current pessary that we now know, um, is rather modern in terms of its like type. It's usually silicone or, or some other type of, um, of what is it? What's the other one? Silicone and some, uh, yeah, now it's I'm, not a, it's, I've never even seen one that's not silicone. There's a different yeah, type, but yeah, anyway, yeah. um, but anyway, <laughs> but that's like not something that's necessarily been around forever. So they're relatively modern in that sense, but they are not marketed as like a cool tool that you can use to give yourself the best support to do what you want with your life. Like if someone would throw me a million dollars, us a million dollars <laughs> right now, that is, an, We're not that is an invitation. Yes. <laughs> I would make the coolest, hippest, most awesome pessary campaign. I'm not even a cool person anymore, but I would find a way to make it the most desirable. Everyone would want one. It would be like, it comes with a matching bag. You have like a pessary for your like pocket chihuahua. It's like this, you know, it's like on your keychain. Like it's so cool. And it's so just this normal thing. It comes in a fun package. 
Um, and, and that's how I feel about pessaries. Like they're so exciting to me because they provide so many people support and the ability to kind of get through their day, but also to return back to what they love, which is not just about going to do those activities, but that's about having this full body experience and full person experience of being able to change the way that your nervous system is currently functioning. And you get to get back to this different state, this state of like familiarity or joy or comfort or whatever it is that will then change potentially the way that you feel in your body from there on, not just when you have the passery in, but related to your whole experience. So it, it, they have so much potential and there are so many different types and there are so many different sizes and there's so much opportunity there. Um, and they're like relatively affordable and they seem successful over long-term use. Like there are so many beautiful things associated with pessaries um, and they can be used at any time for the vast majority of people. There are also contraindications and there are things that we need to be concerned about. But overall, they're a very low risk option for a huge reward. I tell every single one of my clients who has bothersome prolapse to try to be fit successfully for one. And we know that it's not a hundred percent success rate or not a hundred percent of people choose to balance the annoyances that they might have like more discharge or maybe they're predisposed to yeast infections or there's something that makes it too bothersome to them. Um, but well over half of people who get fit for one decide to continue with it. Um, and especially if you're only using it for exercise, I think the number would probably go up. People who are saying, oh, you know, the, the trade-off here is better for me, even though it's a little weird with this one movement, I like it, it's fine, I'll wear it for my workout. Um, I tell everybody, make an appointment with this Eurogyne. I really like her. She knows all my clients. She'll fit you. You'll get in and out, no problem. And if you need to refit it, please go back. It usually takes people a couple of tries. And if you can really say there isn't one out there for you, or you tried it and you hate it, then fine, you'll still be okay. But if you can find this and have it as an option, even if it's collecting dust in your drawer, you know that it's there. And should you choose one day to use it, it's available to you. And I think that's the hard part is the barrier of the appointment and it's annoying and it's another appointment and you usually have to wait for a month to get in at least. Um, but I really strongly encourage people to do it if only to have really all of their options out in front of them and all of their options that, that could immediately change their experience and change their level of confidence in a way that exercise or pelvic floor muscle training or habituation to pop symptoms, all those things take time. Um, and if I have something that would offer somebody an immediate change, I would very much like for them to have that option too. And the vast majority of time it hasn't been discussed with them. Um, and so I just want everybody, I'm sure this Eurogyne is really annoyed with me. I want everybody to go ask about it. Um, you know, even people without pop really who have stress incontinence i'm like go try the incontinence ring like i want you running and not feeling like you have to be bothered by this or worried about it um and i think it's it's crazy to me that it's not uh, widely available it, it seems like something that would be so easy to offer um and and if we talked about it like a sports bra for your 
vagina, then maybe it would be different than something that's a crutch or something that's an orthotic or something that is putting off the inevitable. I think all of those are the common ways that it's conceived upon, even, even among physical therapists. I think it, that is a, a common feeling. Yeah. And we have to start this, you know, the conversations about pop really have to span out in so many ways. But when I think about the stigma associated with pessaries, I think about the the wide array of opinions involving other supportive devices. Like for instance, I'm wearing glasses and there's not at this point in my life, there was when I was five years old and wore glasses and looked like Sally Jesse Raphael, but there was maybe more a little bit, a little bit more stigma at that point. But there's not like I've never in my adult life had somebody say like, wow, you know, I'm so sorry that you have to wear glasses or that just seems so hard for you. And they're like, oh, cool glasses. I like those, you know, or, but, but then we have to look at like, for instance, the idea of like a wheelchair, people tend to have a very negative connotation of, of that type of supportive device. We don't often see, it could be the same. Like if I take off my glasses, I could be so impaired that I could maybe be hit by a car. Like the level of impairment could be right online with someone who maybe maybe could walk just fine without the wheelchair but needs it or uses it to improve their experience throughout their day so our level of impairment may be the same at some degree but the societal connotation can be so different and i think we really need to think about the broader scale of how we talk about function and ability and supportive devices because pessaries are being linked as this thing that like, oh, I don't want to have to have a pessary or I don't want to have to, you know, it's such a drag that I have to, like, there can be some annoyance involved in it, but I don't, every day I put on my bra, I don't say to myself like, oh God, I have to put on my bra. This is such a drain on my life and my self-esteem and I'm such a person with breasts now. And like, you know, you don't take on this whole identity. <laughs> like what it means for me to have this bra or like my shoes, I have to wear my shoes, right? But they're the same thing at a very fundamental level. But we've created so much loaded language involved with what a pessary is and what it can do. Um, and pessaries can be such a positive resource for so many people. Uh, and I think we we can do such a better job of of presenting that, um, yeah. Which is like when we saw our cute images of of pessaries that we had our illustrate. Like I think we had an illustrator design some stuff for us because we had a lot of needs, but that was really the biggest need. Um, was like this really cute like ooh look at it like I wanted to have eyeballs or something like it's just it's, like I wanted to be a character like I want to create a children's show. Of yeah, my stuffies, like, my, my stuffies animated, of these yeah, are my animated sure. like pessary. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Shoot, I know. Um, next Christmas. Yeah, so you know, I just think that there's so much opportunity to change so much of these conversations um, to just be more expansive. It's not all positive, you know. It's not all great. Like, yeah, maybe the discharge with the pessary is really freaking annoying or the yeast infection that somebody might have. And those are, this is not, if someone's afraid of trying a pessary, I don't want them to feel like they shouldn't because they're going to have increased discharge. But like those things can be annoying or the experience of pop can be 
it can impair someone's function and it can change the way that they feel or the way that their anatomy appears or the way that they're able to perform in parts of their life. Like it's not all great. It's not just like, woo, a half pop and that's cool. But we need to have this bigger discussion and continue to have these big discussions about all of these different things um, because there's, there's so much that hasn't really been explored and, and so many people have so many questions or have just never heard of these things. Uh, and there's so much opportunity there. And the yeah. one thing I want to clarify to especially PTs and OTs and people who are doing a little bit more of the like treatment planning counseling stuff is that we get a lot of users in our Facebook group or people who talk to us about having a goal set for them or by them that they would wean off of the pessary, that, that the ultimate goal is that you do not have to use it anymore. Um, and you know, if you take it out and you're still symptomatic, then that indicates that you are not yet ready to have the pessary not inserted and do that. But it, it's not that it's substituting for anything. It's not a crutch and it's not something that is a test for whether you still need it if you take it out and you still have symptoms. Um, and I think a lot of people are using like an analogy of an ankle brace, for example, in their minds or in their conversations with their clients. And it, it's not an ankle brace. It doesn't, it supports connective tissue. It's not substituting for muscle activity. It's not, you know, letting something heal, although it might in the long term, and that would be really cool. Um, but, but it's definitely, I, I challenge people to not see it that way because there's no reason that we should equate it with like a back brace or an ankle brace or an orthotic that does the job of something else that should be doing the job um, because it doesn't seem to have that action at all. It's acting on passive structures um, and doesn't change pelvic floor muscle action either way. I'm glad we talked about that because I think pessaries just aren't talked about nearly enough. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Just a really quick, like, what's a bummer about that distinction from like medical device to like user, like a like a tampon, for instance, is like people are then using things like a sea sponge or using something um, like Impressa, which can be very helpful for some people, but they're not necessarily getting any follow up with that or they're not necessarily getting the greatest degree of support that they could, but they're still incurring risks because of the insertion of anything into the vagina um, and the concerns with all of the like abrasion type things. Um, so they're, they're still going to be using them, but they're not necessarily using something that was specifically designed for that purpose. And so when we're, you know, having these expansive discussions with, not just people with pop, but also providers, like let's make sure that we're going, continuing on the right track to get these things more widely available as well, because there people will use pessaries, like pessary, if we just define it as a supportive device, like they will find a way to use something, whether that's two tampons or a sea sponge um, that lived in the ocean, like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that will find a way. Um, we, you know, the first pessary was a pomegranate. Like, it's just something that's taking up some space or giving some structure. And so someone will find that way. But a pessary, like, that's manufactured for that purpose has so many benefits because it's, it's actually manufactured for that purpose. It's not, like, abrasive and, and rough and it's not going to scratch you. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so just before we um, wrap up, I would love to hear, which I know it can be hard to give one piece of advice, but I'd be curious if you have a piece of advice for professionals working with individuals with POP, something they re- that you really want them to know, and then also for individuals who are experiencing POP. Okay. You want to go first? Sure. Um, <laughs> I want to make this succinct enough so I give you fewer than 30 seconds to Mm. respond. Um, I think for providers, and I'm saying this as a physical therapist, understanding that at least my peers, I think, have had a similar professional education to me and and level of depth or breadth, um, is that I actually think my biggest takeaway from this experience has not been necessarily solely pop related in that, okay, I have a better understanding of some of the pathophysiology and what exactly is happening and, you know, specific to this issue, what do we know? Um, But I think the far more powerful thing that I have taken away from the past few years and that I wish people would take away from this um, as professionals is that we have a lot of capacity to change either on purpose or not. (laughs) Um, And that we often don't give the body enough credit for what it is able to do with the right set of circumstances that we could recommend or impose on someone or ourselves. And, And I think that traditionally physical therapy has been the like, let's do exercises with with light therabands. And then once you're ready to move on to real exercise, then you're discharged from physical therapy. I think that we're reaching a place where we we're losing our ability to help people because fitness professionals and people who are not limited by our understanding of kind of the fragility of the body um, are filling the gap in, and really saying like, I will meet you where you are. I understand intensity of exercise. I understand um, what you're talking about and what it is that you want to do. And I'm not going to tell you, you need to go balance on a BOSU ball in my office three times a week. And that starts to really grind my gears because it, it is not reality. And it makes people think that, um, physical therapy is to fix these very fragile structures that are just hanging on because we are doing ab exercises, right? Like this idea that we are that fragile and that we have that limited of a capacity to change, um, I think is making physical therapy really fall short of what it could be for people. And there are people who are changing that um, in other aspects of talking about shoulders, talking about hips, talking about knees. And so I I hope that that conversation can now extend to the pelvic floor by default, um, because I think that is the larger question. I think we're having this discussion, at least in my mind, about prolapse, but I think the conversation is much larger about questioning our assumptions about how we're seeing the body in its response to the environment and how controllable or influential influential we think we can be on those factors. Um, And then I think that for people with pop. um, Oh, we got to do both. I know. I know. Was it one of each? Yeah. You can do one of each. Totally up to you. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it was no. Oh, just okay. One. All right. So I'll stop there so I don't suck up all of the air in the room. Um, but I would have said kind of the same thing, honestly, which is where you are today is not where you will be tomorrow. You might be worse off tomorrow, but you might be better, but it will be different. And we have some power to direct that change. And 
And if you look day over day, you might not see it. And if you look six months over a year, over three years, like there is so much powerful capacity for change that we have. I think what I would want someone with pop to know, uh, the one thing, if it could be one thing, um, it would be that you are not your pelvic floor. You're not your body. You're not your vagina. You're not your sensation of heaviness. You're not what you used to be able to do or what you can do today. Uh, You are this dynamic changing being that is going through an experience and that experience will change and will be lasting in some ways um, and will influence what you do next, but does not define who you are as an individual. Uh, You will always have your autonomy and your agency and you always get to choose. So much of the conversation about pop is removing the person's ability to have a decision or have an opinion even. And the one thing that I want someone with pop to know is that you are still the boss of your body and you're still the expert of your body. Even if you're learning how some of those functions work a little bit more specifically from people who have tools to help you stay the expert of your body and you can still remain the owner of that expertise. Uh, Maybe we get you a little bit more skill that helps you kind of see it all a little bit clearer and make you feel more confident with what you already know, which is that you are this whole dynamic being um, that is not just reduced to a pelvic floor, but people have made you feel that way and you can take that power back. For people who are working with people with POP, I want them to know the same thing, that we need to see this person as someone who has desires and goals and strengths and things that are not as strong, just the same as anybody else does. They're not someone that needs to be in this special category now. They're someone that needs the same type of support and the same type of encouragement and humor and like hard, you know, tough love and like all the things that all of us need. Um, They're not just prolapse. As a, you know, when I was first starting to work with people, I was terrified of working with people with POP. And every trainer that I've ever, I did a lot of like mentoring of new trainers working with the perinatal population and every single one of them, once we got to the discussion on prolapse, you could see the fear just come to their face because they were so afraid of what it meant to work with someone with pop. And I want them to see that you are working with a person and that person has some pelvic floor support that we need to consider just like you would have needed to consider at any other time. So we need to look beyond the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor is relevant. It's important. It matters. Your experience matters, but it's more than that. And ultimately, like you are still you. Love that. Love it. Um, Can you share a bit more where people can find you on social media and also your amazing courses online? Yeah. So people can find us on Instagram and Facebook. The, uh, the, what is it? Avatar, not avatar, the at sign. It's pop uplift. Handle. Handle, Thank you. It's pop uplift. Uh, Our name is pop up and we actually have pop up registered, but I forgot the login. So we're pop uplift. And and anyone that knows me knows that I forgot the login because of course I did. And our website is popuplifting.com. Pop-Up and Uplifting Guide is our flagship course. Pop-Up Pro is the course for professionals. Those are both accessible via the website. And there are also links in our bio in, on Instagram and Facebook. 
Um, that's where we are right now. And then in about five years, if you're listening to this, we probably were at Walgreens, every major retailer, uh, we're there. Um, we have children's toys and, uh, and in coming to a movie theater near you, but right now, we are and on Netflix, but right now we are on Instagram and Facebook and on our website, pop up lift or pop up Amazing. And yeah, anyone listening, um, individuals or professionals, I highly, highly recommend their courses. I've gone through all the ones that have been available so far and the professional one that just came out and there's such incredible resources that I'm so thankful that, and I know Jess is thankful that you've created. So I just think everyone needs to check those out and follow you also on social media um, and Facebook groups too. So, um, thank you so much, both of you for, uh, for joining me tonight and for sharing this information. Thank you, Anita. You are so fabulous. We've really enjoyed hanging out with you for this hour and a half. It's been super fun. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for having us. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 